Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary, only prohibited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Southern Gothic is a podcast that explores the history behind some of the American South's darkest days, greatest mysteries, and most chilling ghost stories. There was a light drizzling rain on the afternoon of April 15, 1913, but that didn't stop thousands of people from descending on the train station in Opelousas, Louisiana. A local boy named Bobby Dunbar had gone missing back in August of the previous year, and for eight excruciating months, the community had held out hope that he'd eventually make it home. So when Bobby was finally found, reportedly kidnapped by a man in Mississippi. The town couldn't wait to celebrate his return with an event that the New Orleans Times Democrat later described as, quote, more like the homecoming of a conquering hero than any other event which has happened in Louisiana in years. Every store in town closed that day and the entire town came out to watch as the boy and his parents stepped off the train from New Orleans. A brass band played songs like Home Sweet Home and Hail Hail the Conquering Hero Comes. And when that train finally arrived, bells were rung and fireworks set off. The crowd went wild at the first sight of little Bobby and his parents, Percy and Lessie, wept with joy as they started to make their way through the dense crowd of people who wanted nothing more than to dote on the child and shake the Dunbar's hands. Outside of the station, Members of community organizations like the Elks, Masons, Oddfellows, and even the Fire Company were all waiting to accompany the Dunbars back to their home. And when the family finally made it through the crowd, Bobby and his father climbed atop a fire wagon with some of the town leaders, and a procession through Opelousas began. The boy's mother followed in the car behind them, and more than a hundred automobiles and carriages joined in the celebration Bobby's return. When they finally arrived at the Dunbar's house, the family was again greeted with a great applause, and Bobby was taken inside the family home to be reunited with his friends and brother, while several men spoke to the crowd outside, starting with his father, Percy Dunbar. 
Percy's voice purportedly broke with emotion as he addressed his neighbors, thanking them for this incredible reception, promising that nothing in the world would ever take away his gratitude for what they had done that day. A prominent lawyer named John W. Lewis then followed with a lengthy Shakespearean speech assuring the people of Opelousas that justice would be served and the man who they believe kidnapped Bobby be punished for the crime. Lewis bellowed, He who tears from the breast of the mother her child and plunges a whole state in tears can never be permitted long to darken the civilization of the universe. While the folks in Opelousa celebrated the return of one of their own, a woman in North Carolina named Julia Anderson was overcome with panic and terror. It seemed that her boy, named Bruce, was being kidnapped as well. But the problem was that no one believed her. My name is Brandon Schecksneider, and you are listening to Southern Gothic. In August of 1912, Percy and Lessie Dunbar took their family on a fishing getaway to Swayze Lake in St. Landry Parish, Louisiana, just east of their hometown in Opelousas. Percy was a well-to-do real estate and insurance salesman, and he and his wife Lessie had two sons, a four-year-old named Robert, or Bobby, and a two-year-old named Alonzo. But on this particular trip out to Lessie's uncle's cabin, one that they made many times, they were joined by Percy's cousin Wallace and his family, as well as Lessie's sister, a family friend named Paul, and some hired help. As you can expect with a bunch of kids out in the woods, the morning of Friday, August 23rd was filled with activity. The children were running in and out of the cabin, being rambunctious and behaving as children often do. Percy had been called away for a brief work call, and several other guests showed up and joined the men fishing down at the lake with the boys. Around noon, the group began making their way back up to the cabin for lunch. Paul hoisted two-year-old Alonzo up onto his shoulders and gave him a playful ride, and Bobby, wearing blue rompers and a yellow straw hat, almost knocked Paul over trying to make his way past them. Paul warned the little boy jokingly, get out of the way, Heavy, or I'll run you over. Heavy was Bobby's nickname, and the boy shouted back gleefully, you can't do it, you ain't no bigger than me. Bobby then darted off laughing, and Paul went about his business. But as Lessie was setting the table for their midday meal, she noticed that Bobby wasn't there. Paul, who still had Alonzo on his shoulders, had just seen him, but had no idea where he darted off to, and neither did anyone else in the group. So Lessie began to call for her boy, and with the lack of response from each call, her voice grew louder and louder, and panic began to set in. 
The men immediately began a search for Bobby, and when Percy arrived home, he found his panicked wife crumpled on the ground, overcome with fear. But the father immediately sprang into action. A feverish search commenced, and the men scoured the area by the lake for either the boy or at least some type of evidence that he had been there. About a half mile from the cabin was a switch track for the OG railway, and the men went to search there as well, fearful that they might find Bobby's mangled and lifeless body on the tracks. But still, nothing was found. Fortunately, an engineer promised to send help when he got back to town. And several hours later, a train arrived with a hundred men, all ready to search. Yet the search yielded no results. Little Bobby Dunbar was gone without a trace. For the next week, newspapers from all over the South reported the disappearance of the little boy. But after a week without any sign, most people feared that he had either drowned, was eaten by an alligator, or was killed by one of the many extreme hazards of the dense Louisiana swamp. But no one actually wanted to stop looking for him. Over 500 volunteers trekked out to the lake to search for Bobby, and the Gulf and Northeastern Railroad even placed special trains at the disposal of all persons assisting the Dunbars, a number that continued to grow rather quickly after the citizens of Opelousas came up with a reward of $1,000. $1,000 has been subscribed by citizens of Opelousas and deposited with the Planters National Bank of Opelousas, Louisiana to be paid to any person, a person who will deliver to his parents alive, little Robert Clarence Dunbar. No questions asked. Age four years and four months, full size for age, stout but not fat, large round blue eyes, white hair and very fair skin with rosy cheeks. Left foot had been burned when a baby and shows scar on big toe, which is somewhat smaller than big toe on right foot. Wore blue rockers and straw hat without shoes. Full name, Robert Clarence Dunbar. The lake was blown with dynamite, hoping to bring the boy's body to the surface and folks even went out to hunt alligators just to gut them and check their insides for the child's remains. Unfortunately, no piece of clothing nor parts of a body were ever found. On the day Bobby disappeared, he was wearing a yellow straw hat, so an experiment was done by taking an identical hat and setting it afloat on Swayze Lake, just to see how long it would take before it sank. But the hatches rotated around the lake for days, causing some to believe that there was no way he could have fallen into the water and drowned, or the search party would have found his hat there. Now, this experiment was far from scientifically accurate since Bobby could have lost his hat before entering the water, but the Dunbars desperately clung to the results continuing to have hope that their baby boy would soon be found. So by September 7th, Percy Dunbar began to tell folks that he believed his son must have been kidnapped. As a result, 
the reward for information on Bobby's whereabouts was raised to $5,000, a total that's equivalent to about $150,000 today. Now, as you can expect, with that amount of money on the line, all sorts of information began coming in. And any time there was a report of a boy matching Bobby's description in the company of a questionable-looking individual, Percy Dunbar dropped everything and traveled out to try and corroborate the sighting. This included trips all over the South, including Baton Rouge, Atlanta, and Mobile. Proof that the story of Bobby Dunbar's disappearance had spread like wildfire. And now that Percy maintained that his son was still alive, the newspapers followed his lead and began reporting that Bobby wasn't missing. He had been kidnapped. As months passed and winter set in without any progress, a shroud of sadness and doubt settled heavily on the Dunbar family. But in April of 1913, there was another sighting that seemed promising, this time near Columbia, Mississippi. An itinerant tinkerer by the name of William Cantwell Walters was seen traveling with a boy matching Bobby's description. As a result, the authorities took the pair into custody and alerted law enforcement in St. Landry Parish. Of course, Walters denied that the boy was Bobby Dunbar, claiming that his name was Bruce Anderson and that he was the son of a woman named Julia Anderson, who took care of Walters' parents back home in North Carolina. So a photo was sent to the Dunbar so they could see for themselves. Percy quickly declared that the boy in question was not his son and his brother even went all the way to Mississippi to investigate and came to the same conclusion. The young man was not his nephew. So Walters and the boy were free to go. But Percy Dunbar started having second thoughts and he soon decided that he wanted to lay eyes on the child himself before putting it to rest. After all, who could blame him? Percy had been searching for his son for months, desperately holding on to hope that Bobby was still alive. So Percy went to Mississippi himself and had the authorities pick up Walter and the boy once again. When Percy finally got to see the child, he thought it was possible that the round face looking back at him was that of his long-lost son but the grief-stricken father wasn't sure and called for his wife to join him in Mississippi to see for herself. At the time, newspaper reports deferred greatly on what happened next out there in Mississippi. One article with the headline, Mother Faints, Sight of Kidnapped Child, claimed the following. But the mother reached the house where the boy was being kept. He was asleep. Mrs. Dunbar made a careful examination of the lad without awakening him and was standing over the bed a few hours later when the child opened his eyes. The boy recognized his mother instantly. Mother, he cried, as he reached up and stretched out his arms to her. The mother convulsively embraced the boy and then fainted. On the other hand, some papers claimed that Mrs. Dunbar was just as hesitant to say that the boy was her son as her husband Percy had been. 
A report titled Mrs. Dunbar, Not Positive Lad is Her Missing Boy described this purported version of that night. When they reached the home, the child was asleep at the time. When awakened, it began to cry. Mrs. Dunbar looked in the dim light of a smoky oil lamp and then fell back with a gasp. I do not know. I am not quite sure, faltered Mrs. Dunbar. Of course, only eight months had passed since Bobby's disappearance, not nearly long enough for his appearance to have changed dramatically. So it seemed a bit telling that his parents couldn't really be sure if it was him or not. What's more is that the child didn't recognize Lessie as his mother. It wasn't until the following day, when Mrs. Dunbar was allowed to bathe him, that she finally declared that the boy was indeed her son. She said that the various marks on his body, like a scar on his toe and a mole on his neck, matched that of her son, and the conditions in which he'd been living for the past eight months could have altered his appearance. Still, some newspapers stuck to the story that the boy recognized her right away and called her mother. This is where the case of Bobby Dunbar took a turn that has had ramifications for generations. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw. <gasps> Ava, she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she... Well, or call she, the police. Or call the police, like she should have, exactly. <laughs> What does she do? She takes an ashtray and she knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then from beneath the Hollywood sign is the gin joint for you. To many, it seemed that the mystery as to where Bobby Dunbar had been for the last eight months had finally been solved, and that his grieving mother and father could finally take a breath of peace now that their son was coming home. But William Walters continued to maintain that this was not the boy that everyone wanted him to be. Originally from North Carolina, 
William Walters traveled the South, fixing things like watches, clocks, and musical instruments. While on the road, he sometimes stayed in boarding houses and hotels, but often he'd just stay with the folks who he was doing business with. Well, before he left on his latest excursion, Walters said he asked Julia Anderson if he could bring her son Bruce along with him, since strangers were more accommodating to traveling peddlers in the company of children. Julia, an unwed mother of three, took care of Walters' aging parents while he was out of town. And according to Walters, she agreed to the offer as she thought if he took Bruce off her hands for a while, she might be able to get a leg up on some of her financial issues. After all, she thought her son would be back in no time at all. Of course, Walter swore to the authorities that if they just asked Julia, she'd corroborate his story and it would clear up the whole matter. Not to mention, Bruce had been with Walter since before Bobby Dunbar even went missing. And one of the families they'd stayed with, Jeff Babilbo and his wife, could vouch for that as well. But once Percy and Lessie Dunbar claimed that the child was theirs, William Walter's explanation fell on deaf ears, and the Dunbars were allowed to take the boy back with them to Louisiana, leaving Walters to sit in a Mississippi jail for the crime of kidnapping. There, he wrote a letter to the Dunbar family. I see that you got Bruce, but you have heaped up trouble for yourselves. I had no choice to prove up but I know by now you've decided you're wrong. It's very likely I will lose my life on account of that. And if I do, the great God will hold you accountable. That boy's mother is Julia Anderson. You ask him and he will tell you. I did not teach him to beg or bum, but inasmuch as you have him, take good care of him. So you have lost Robert and Nia lost Bruce. May God bless my darling boy. Write me if I don't get lynched. I think you'll be sad a long time, but I hope not too bad. The townsfolk of Opelousas didn't care about any of that, though. They were all infatuated with the story of the boy, who had been metaphorically snatched from the jaws of an alligator and returned to his loving family. But this didn't stop others from questioning the Dunbars. After all, if this child wasn't who they said it was, then not only would William Walters be punished for a crime he didn't commit, but there was also another mother, hundreds of miles away, who had experienced the extreme torment of losing her son. Fortunately, the governor of Mississippi acknowledged what was at stake and refused to send William Walters to Louisiana for a trial until there was further proof that the boy was in fact Bobby Dunbar. What that meant was that Julia Anderson would finally have a chance to see if that boy actually was her son, Bruce, as the traveling peddler had claimed. When she arrived in Louisiana, the authorities presented a series of five boys to her to pick from. But by this time, it had been over a year since Anderson had seen Bruce, even longer than the Dunbars had been without Bobby. So she, much like Lessie Dunbar, could not immediately identify her child. In fact, so much time had passed that Bobby's little brother Alonzo, who was now about the age that her son Bruce was the last time that she saw him, was one of the children in the lineup, and Julia 
almost picked him. The test was a failure. But the heartbroken mother begged for another chance. But the following day, after she was given time alone with the boy, Julia Anderson claimed confidently, from the bottom of my heart, I believe he is my child. But the press had already taken off with the story from the night before. And unlike the grace that they had shown Lessie Dunbar when she struggled to be able to identify the boy back in Mississippi, Julia Anderson was characterized in the worst way imaginable. An article in the New Orleans item titled, Julia Has Forgotten, cruelly stated, Her long journey had been in vain. She had not seen her son since February of 1912, and she had forgotten him. Animals don't forget, but this big, coarse country woman, several times a mother, she forgot. She cared little for her young. Children were only regrettable incidents in her life. She hopes her son isn't dead, just as she hopes that the cotton crop will be good this year. A true mother love, she has none. In spite of this treatment, no one could ever come up with a reason as to why she'd lie about the child in question being hers. Julia Anderson was a penniless widow who had not asked for any monetary compensation for the mix-up, and taking care of a child that wasn't hers would most certainly make her life more difficult. In fact, according to Julia, the Dunbars had even offered her money to say that the boy wasn't hers, which she refused to do. Although, Percy Dunbar responded to that claim. I can get 1,000 witnesses who say that the boy we have is no other than Bobby Dunbar. They knew him before he was stolen. So, in June of 1913, a court-ordered arbitration began to determine the identity of the boy. There, not only did Julia corroborate Walter's story, admitting that she allowed him to temporarily take her son. But the Bilbo family, whom Bruce and William had stayed with in July of 1912, also came and identified Bruce as the child who had been in their home, along with a number of other witnesses who claimed that Walters had only one child with him. And it was in fact the boy in the center of the room that day. But none of this mattered. The Dunbars were a wealthy family and prominent members of this community. And Julia Anderson couldn't even afford a lawyer. So at the end of the day, when the arbitrator declared that the boy was Robert Clarence Dunbar and not Bruce Anderson, Julia had absolutely no recourse. To her, it seemed that her son was being kidnapped. As for William Walters, he was sent to Louisiana and charged with kidnapping, for which the penalty could be as high as death. Silence in the, court. the trial didn't begin until almost a year later, in April of 1914. By this point, Percy Dunbar claimed that he knew right away that the boy was his son, even if early reports claimed his doubts were strong enough that he needed his wife's opinion. In addition, Julia Anderson continued to be vilified with much attention given to the fact that she was unmarried, uneducated, and poor, insinuating that Julia must not have missed Bruce all that much 
since she did absolutely nothing to try and find her son in that year when he was away with Walters. Walters' defense argued that his poor health and stiff knees would have prevented him from carrying out the kidnapping, as the prosecutor suggested, claiming that he wasn't capable of trudging through the dense wilderness on foot to get to Swayze Lake or to climb up the trestle to snatch the boy. In fact, he didn't even have a motive to be at the lake in the first place. If that wasn't enough, a number of trustworthy witnesses gave testimony claiming that Walters was with them in Mississippi when Bobby Dunbar went missing. The strongest evidence of all, though, was that Bobby Dunbar had a unique deformity on his foot from an accident when he was younger, and the boy that the Dunbar family now claimed as theirs did not have that deformity. Unfortunately, William Walters was found guilty of kidnapping Bobby Dunbar, and after much deliberation, he was sentenced to life in prison. Fortunately, in the years that followed, Walters' lawyers made a successful appeal that made it all the way up to the state Supreme Court. He was granted a new trial, but the city decided that that would cost too much money. So after serving two years in jail, Walters was released for good. As for Julia Anderson, a mother who had not only lost her child, but was also publicly maligned, she had absolutely nowhere to go after the trial and no means to return back to North Carolina. So the people of Mississippi, those who had given refuge to William Walters and the boy during the summer of 1912, took Julia in and lifted her up as best as they could. They took care of that grieving mother when no one else would. Eventually, she married a good man and had several children who all grew up hearing stories about their brother Bruce, who had been kidnapped by the Dunbar family and given a new name and a new life. These kids saw their mother very differently than what had been depicted in the press. They knew her as a devout woman who went to church every week and loved to read. They knew her as a kind and loving mother who did not think of her children as regrettable incidents. But most of all, they saw their mother pine for the boy she lost for the rest of her life. As for the Dunbar family, the joy of bringing home the child who they believed was their missing son didn't last for long. In 1920, only a little over five years after the trial of William Walters, Lessie Dunbar filed for divorce, left the two boys with Percy, and moved to New Orleans. Lessie cited his infidelity as her main reason, but also violence, as Percy had stabbed a man in 1920. So it appears that the life of the young man, considered to be Bobby, was destined to be one of turbulence. That is, until he was able to build a family of his own. He eventually had four children, and by all accounts, he and his wife Marjorie had a beautiful life together. In spite of everything the man had been through, both he and Julia Anderson seemed to have found peace. Many years later, after Bobby Dunbar had passed, his granddaughter Margaret Dunbar became obsessed with the story and began researching their family's past in an attempt to piece together 
a definitive narrative of how her grandfather, Bobby Dunbar, had been kidnapped and triumphantly returned to the Dunbar family, as she had been told. But this letter to the family and children of Julia Anderson, and Margaret was surprised to find that they told a completely different story of the events that she had heard growing up at Dunbar. So, to set the story straight, Margaret had her father take a DNA test so that they could compare it to that of the surviving family of his uncle, Alonzo Dunbar. This, she believed, would once and for all prove that the story she heard growing up was true and that her grandfather was in fact the boy that Percy and Lessie claimed he was. But the results proved otherwise. Her father's DNA did not match anyone in the Dunbar family. It seemed that the boy who lived Bobby Dunbar's life was Bruce Anderson after all. For the Anderson family, this proved that their mother was not a liar. And for the family of William Walters, it cleared their loved one's name. Some have speculated that Percy and Lessie knew the truth all along. And the fact that Lessie had filed for divorce and left the child that she fought so hard for behind proved that she knew the truth. But honestly, we'll never know. And it certainly wouldn't be fair to judge her, just as it wasn't fair to judge Julia Anderson all those years ago. After all, both of these women had experienced incomprehensible loss. My name is Brandon Schecksneider, and you've been listening to Southern Gothic. Southern Gothic is an independent podcast produced by Southern Gothic Media. This week's episode was researched and written by Loretta Allen and edited by Brandon Schecksneider. If you're a fan of the show and would like more content, be sure to join us over on Patreon or become a premium subscriber on the Apple Podcast app, where you'll not only receive access to both ad-free and monthly premium episodes, but also help this show continue to grow. For more information on Southern Gothic, be sure to visit southerngothicmedia.com today. And as always, thanks for listening. Lucky Lady Shacks. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off 
wherever you get your podcasts.